Howdy y'all, and welcome back to the Treehouse Anime Club. This is my podcast where I talk about anime production and the fine folks who make it all possible. My name is Dave, and I am the creator and host of this program, and this week we are covering the production story of Violet Evergarden. This is animated by Kyoto Animation and directed by Haruka Fujita and Taichi Ishidate, respectively. This episode, I am going to talk about pretty much all of the anime that was produced for Violet Evergarden. That is the 13-episode series, plus the one-episode uh, special OVA. I'm just, I, I kind of softly refer to that one as episode 14. There are also two movies, The Eternity and Auto Memories Doll, and Violet Evergarden, the movie. I am not talking about the Recollections film because that is a compilation film. So anything I have to say about the main series, just... Say, put the same thing on Recollections film. The uh, original source is a light novel, actually, written by Kana Akatsuki and illustrated by Akiko Takase. But before we get there, I got to do the thing where I promote the show. So, the Treehouse Anime Club is on the air, courtesy of Spotify for Podcasters. You can, of course, jump into Spotify and find us there, or find us on any other platform that you feel comfortable with. I am on Apple Podcasts, I'm on Google Podcasts, I'm on Amazon Music. I recently just added iHeartRadio, I believe, and a couple of other platforms. Just jump over to Spotify for Podcasters and you'll find them. Or you can jump in, copy my RSS link into the platform of your choice. We post new episodes twice a month on Wednesdays at 3 p.m. Central. We also have an Instagram. This is the Treehouse Anime Pod, all one word. You can stay up to date with the show, plus a couple of extra goodies. And I just opened up a Threads account since I could just copy paste the Instagram straight over there. So it's a different platform, kind of, but it's another way to get the show out. So you can find us on Threads through the Instagram account or also find us on Threads via Treehouse Anime Pod. We also have a Discord. You can follow the link to the Treehouse Anime Club Instagram. There is a Discord invite there as well. There are no longer permanent invite links uh, available but I do have a 30-day invite link that I keep refreshed on the Instagram. I also have a Discord invite link in the show notes if you so choose to follow it. Either way, any and all engagement really helps the show. I really appreciate your listenership. And if you feel so inclined, feel free to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Again, it really helps the show. It really does. So our next segment is, of course, what have I been watching? Aside from things for the podcast, I have been catching up on the Summer 23 anime schedule as well as picking up a few stragglers from last season. So I am restarting Insomniacs After School. I really love that show. I have also picked up Ancient Magus Bride Season 2. It's all out now. I don't have to think about it weekly. There was just a bunch of characters and a lot of new things going on. So I decided back in the spring to just let that whole show finish. I've also been watching a lot of the summer 2023 season, this current season, and I actually just made an episode of all of that. So instead of outlining everything here, I just decided to put it all into another episode. That's the bonus episode. I believe it's the sizzling summer season recommendations or something like that is the name of the episode. Check it out if you want. Uh, that's that's just where I go into more detail. Uh, but to get, hit a couple of the highlights, I'm watching a lot of horror. I really don't watch a lot of anime horror, but it's showing up this year, at least for horror adjacent. Not so much scary, although Dark Gathering is kind of creepy, but that's more I am just feel scared for the main character. But Dark Gathering is really good. I've really enjoyed that first episode. I've seen the first two episodes of ZOM 100 Bucket List of the Dead. That show is going to be fantastic. 
I'm just going to say it right now, that might just be the show of the season. And there's also Undead Murder Farce. That's looking to be really interesting as well. I really love the gothic vibe of that show. It's it's super unique. I don't see a lot of shows like Undead Murder Farce out on the market. So I'm interested to see where that one's going to go. And of course, Helk is an early one that I'm not sure what's going to happen, but a lot of my friends who are manga readers are telling me like, oh boy, just you wait and see. So I'm trusting them. And of course, High Dive has, they don't get much every season, but they tend to get the real smash hits of the season. Even just last year, they had Ya Boy Kong Ming and Akiba Maid War. Like those shows alone just took over, not to mention a couple of others. So I'm, I have a I have high expectations for Helk. So moving on, there is, we also run a little bit of a trivia segment, and this is what I call the 15 seconds of fame, where I play about 15 seconds of music or a clip from an anime, and it is up to you to figure out the property. Our most recent episode, I tried to go for a purely vocal clip, and I think I went a little too obscure with this one because I didn't get any responses, and the, the kind of responses I did were just kind of like, shrugs like I don't know what this is and even as I was in the discord kind of trying to get a little of like a picture reveal I had one of the promo images so like every day I would reveal more of that promo image and it was still just crickets must be tough working at a convenience store this late at night it's not so bad I'm used to it but you're not used to the black money are you hey who are you I'm just someone who happened to see your first deal you're pretty impressive for a rookie so then you've been to that city too only people who've been to the financial district can tell the difference between regular and black money. Actually, it's called Midas money because it's issued from the Bank of Midas. So I wonder if any of you detectives ever figured this one out. This anime is called C, The Money of Soul and Possibility Control. This is a spring 2011 anime produced by Tatsunoko Productions, and this was actually directed by Kinji Nakamura. And the general idea is you have this guy, Kimimaro, he's a poor scholarship student, and he's also an orphan. He is visited one day by this really peculiar man who offers him a large sum of money, but the collateral is his future. And he gives Kimimaro this shiny black credit card. And Kimimaro is not so certain, but he does decide to use the money. But this immediately uh, teleports him to a mysterious area known as the Financial District. And this is essentially a battle series where you invest in an attack. And then if that attack lands into your opponent, you get a gain, a return on investment. So it uses a lot of financial lingo and that sort of deal for its battle system. I found this show on Crunchyroll in 2011. And this is about the time that Crunchyroll was really starting to get its first legs as a legal streaming site. So this is one of those I just, they didn't have a, really deep catalog at the time. So the money of soul and possibility was kind of on the front page. And I was like, let's just give this a shot. And I rather liked it. It's something that I feel is if you're, if I was to put a numerical rating for it, it's a very seven out of 10 show, but it's a very unique premise. And I liked the execution and I kind of like the ending of it as well. So for our clip this week, I'm going to do something a little different. So rather than play a clip from just a random anime, I am going to try and make the 15 seconds of fame kind of relate to the show or the company that I'm covering. So for instance, this week, since Violet Evergarden is produced by Kyoto Animation, I'm going to introduce a clip 
from a different show that Kyoto Animation was involved in producing. This doesn't mean that Kyoto Animation was in charge of the production, but this is a show that they worked on. And so I'm going to roll this clip and it is you up to you to figure this out. So here is your clip in 15 seconds of fame. I hope you enjoy. I hope you look up and see what Kyoto Animation worked on. Because remember, this is a property, a couple of you may be scratching your heads, like, Kyoto Animation worked on this? Yes, this is a property that involved Kyoto Animation in the production cycle, not necessarily produced by KyoAni themselves. So, for those of you who may not have gotten that within the first couple of seconds, I will give you a rough time period, and you can go over on the Anime News Network Encyclopedia. I use the anime database, anydb.net, and you can just type in the creator, Kyoto Animation, and scroll through their works. They have the major works section, which is stuff that Kyoto Animation produced. And then you have a minor works section where KyoAni was involved with like backgrounds, in-between animations, some key animation stuff. So for this clue, your time period is early 2000s. I'm going to give you that. And has also appeared on a popular late night American television broadcasting block. I'm giving this to you on a silver platter. All the same... Good luck, detectives. And now let's jump into the main body of the podcast. Violet, you know that, well, you know the war is over. I am the Major's tool. But if he doesn't need me anymore, then I should be discarded. Please discard me somewhere. Violet, listen. You have to live and be free. The Major... actually... alive? Going to learn many things in the future. Although, it might be easier... to keep living... if you never learn them. Alright, here we go. This is the studio rundown, as always, for Kyoto Animation Company Limited. They're located in the Kyoto Prefecture, obviously. They were co-founded in 1981 by married couple Yoko and Hideaki Hata. They actually got married in 1975 and had three children before deciding they wanted to go into the animation business. The husband, Hideaki Hata, he serves as the company's president and executive producer. Yoko is the executive director and heads the planning and production department. Yoko Hata was actually a former cell painter at Mushi Productions, and so this also informed the couple's decision to go into animation because there was a need in the coloring department space in the industry. This is a costly production step being incredibly, uh, increasingly outsourced to China and Korea to low-wage workers. So Kyoto Animation started off as a business that was committed to hiring local. That was the name Kyoto Anime Company, which before they were renamed to Kyoto Animation Company. This, so they got their early days, they were a production assistant studio, so this is more like coloring and finishing, cell cleanup, just that kind of thing. The company, actually, this is interesting, the company placed recruitment ads in the local newspapers. They offered art education and training for the basics of animation production. 
No experience required. In fact, a lot of the company's earliest employees were a bunch of housewives who were eager to earn a little extra money while still raising their children. And so from the start, Kyoto Animation conducted their business in a, to a different beat than all the major animation studios at the time. And if you know anything about animation production, particularly anime, there, there are some pretty notoriously brutal working conditions, long hours and little pay. It's a real problem with the industry, and it's something that I just can't in, get into today. It's, it's bad. But KyoAni, from the start, they allowed their employees to work from home. This is in the 80s, in the anime industry, like this in the 1980s. And the company kept strict control over their working hours, the strict 9 to 5. And these are practices that KyoAni has kept and improved upon to this day. They were doing work from home and childcare services back in the 19 freaking 80s. Companies nowadays are just now getting around to do that, like at the bare minimum. There is an affiliate studio. This is Studio Animation Do, a D-O company. This was originally established in 2000 as Kyoto Animation Osaka Studio before being incorporated as a limited company that same year. The studio became its own corporation in 2010, but in 2020, Kyoto Animation fully absorbed Animation Do. The studio was practically a second arm of Kyoto Animation from the start, so they subcontracted on several projects. But Studio Animation uh, Do did produce their own series in 2013. This is the free Iwatobi Swim Club. That was a big deal in 2013, in the summer season, I believe. And it's had a myriad uh, number of spinoffs and sequels. And everything involving the Iwatobi Swim Club production has Kyoto Animation jointly listed as an animation producer. So these are things that were just made hand-in-hand uh, hand with this animation studio. And while I'm here, I want to hit some notable highlights about the Kyoto Animation Studio because they have a very unique setup in the industry. And in my mind, it's a great example of how to make sustainable animation with your employees without doing all this burnout stuff and all this other manipulative practices of other companies. Kyoto Animation has always taken the long-term approach to fostering its staff. Even though there's no immediate payoff, the long-term results and the consistent results once you build up that worker base, like their, their quality of animation just speaks for itself. So since its early days, in a male-dominated industry, Kyoto Animation has earned a reputation for hiring more women and promoting more women than other studios. Point number two, we've already covered the working hours not being ridiculous as well as the flexible work environment because the majority of animators on a lot of projects are what we call like temporary contractor workers with little to no benefits or really assistance of any kind. However, Kyoto Animation workers, they are salaried plus options like maternity leave and just all the general benefits like dental and all the other things that you would imagine if you were just worked at a proper company like a lot of these temporary contractors, they don't have any of that. They're just hired and then they're let go as soon as the project's over. This is what really sets Kyoto Animation apart because their salaried workers are trained in-house. And overall, this is just a better staff buy-in and retention. Kyoto Animation also has its own school, complete with specific programs. The instructors for these programs are active creators and employees with the company. It's just a really unique setup. And even though you may not end up working for Kyoto Animation, you can still attend their school and then go out into the wider industry as a whole. So it's a really cool, unique setup. And it's something that more studios I've seen in the news cycle, more studios are kind of 
eyeballing. But again, this is a lot to set up initially. It's a lot of capital. It's a lot of investment and it's a lot of time. And a lot of animation studios just don't have that time or resources to do what Kyoto Animation has been able to build up. You don't do this kind of thing overnight. So some of the earliest jobs for the studios I mentioned earlier, this is the finishing and cleanup. They were also big in the coloring department because of Yoko Hata. So a couple of their smaller contributions, particularly like with coloring, they worked on the 1983 OVA Crusher Joe. They also worked on the 1984 film Lock the Superman. They did animation assistance across uh, Kimagure Orange Road, uh, all of that main series and the follow-up projects. Uh, Kimagure Orange Road was animated by Studio Piero. And Kyoto Animation has even worked on Akira. Akira. They did some in-between animation assistance. So, of course, some of their bigger hits coming in at the mid-2000s and at the end of the 2000s were, of course, works like Lucky Star and The Melancholy of Haruhi Suzumiya. Like, even now, I can't get those songs and dances out of my head as much as I want to. The first series I ever watched from Kyoto Animation was Clanad. And Clanad was actually the third anime I watched. There was Fullmetal Alchemist, there was Soul Eater, and then there was Clanad. At the time I was watching Clanad, the, the sequel series, After Story, was on the way. And so I was able to catch up with season one just in time to start After Story with my friends. Like, we just would not shut up about this show. And Clanad was adapted from the visual novel series by the company Visual Arts Key. I really liked Clanad, and I liked it so much that I actually worked my way back through the key adaptations prior to it. So this was Canon and then Air. And so back in the day, I remember this uh, being called something like the KyoAni Key Trilogy. This was something of a big deal to get these three major visual novels animated, and Kyoto Animation was the studio that did that. Some of their biggest hits of the 2010s, you have your Slice of Life comedies like Nichijo, My Ordinary Life. There's also Miss Kobayashi's Dragon Maid. We have Sports, the aforementioned Free Iwatobi Swim Club, and also one uh, called uh, Sorune, Kazumai High School Kyoto Club, that is uh, traditional archery. And they, of course, have a lot of musical series. They have K-On, cute girls doing uh, band things, and a pretty big franchise all on its own, the Sound Euphonium series, another show, cute girls doing band things, but this is more like actual marching band or concert band, and it has a whole myriad of spinoffs as well. Sound Euphonium is a big deal. And since 2009, Kyoto Animation has also hosted the annual uh, Kyoto Animation Awards. And there are three categories. You have original novels, manga, and scenarios. And a few winning submissions are published under the company's uh, KA uh, Kyoto Animation, Esma Bunko imprint. And, uh, oh, by the way, the Bunko imprint is uh, the word for light novels. And so Kyoto Animation has its own light novel publishing arm. And a few of these stories that go through their animation awards and get printed in under their light novel uh, arm have a shot of getting adapted into anime. In fact, it's through this uh, Bunko imprint is how we got free. There is also the anime uh, Love, Chunibyo, and Other Delusions. There's also Beyond the Boundary, uh, Myriad Colors, Phantom World, and obviously Violet Evergarden. A little bit more on that later. So rest assured, like Kyoto Animation is going to be well represented on this podcast in future episodes. Their quality of work is just too good to be ignored. And most of these projects, including Violet Evergarden, were produced at Studio One. But this is, of course, 
there there were I, I can't tell you how many ways I tried to transition into this next segment, but like there's no there's no good way to transition to this next part because when we talk about Studio One, nowadays there inevitably is the arson attack from July eighteenth, twenty nineteen. And this is a really tough part of the episode, and this is a tough part of writing the episode for me, because you can't talk about Kyoto animation or really any piece about it without the arson attack coming up. Almost every single recent article and piece of media in general covering Kyoto Animation since 2019 talks about the fire. But I don't want to dwell on this too long because this has been covered to death and it honestly still hurts today. And there are a myriad of details leading up to this attack. All of the warning signs, endless what-if scenarios, the possible prevention measures, security deal, uh, the lack of security at Studio One... In the end, I don't think any reasonable person could could have foreseen this. If you honestly care to look up the details or lists of the people who lost their lives, like I mean, there's numerous articles regarding the subject, but that just doesn't change what happened. And I am talking about this because Japan is an incredibly safe country by comparison to the rest of the world. They have some of the lowest crime rate per capita. And I mean, when I talk about like this is a big deal, we over in the U.S., it's it's unfortunate over here that just how much just violence that we've just become desensitized to. But over in Japan, this arson attack on Kyoto Animation Studio One is stated as the worst act of mass murder in the country since World War II. And while we go through that, just let that statement just stew in your brain. Think about that statement, just how incredible that statement is. Let that stew in your brain. And as for me, I first heard about the fire shortly after it all went down, and there were some early articles coming out. I knew it was bad from first impressions, but it was really over the subsequent days as more details trickled in that I realized how bad it was. In light of this, just the all of the outpouring of love and support for the families and the studio itself was just an inspiration for all. And the, for instance, the company Sentai Filmworks, they raised a GoFundMe for the victims and their families. And they immediately raised over a million dollars in less than a day. And $2.3 million total was the final tally. Every anime YouTuber was on the platform doing a video of tributes and just laying out their grief. The bigger guys like Giguk and the uh, Anime Man and Glass Reflection, they donated all of the ad revenue proceeds from their video to Sentai's GoFundMe accounts for the victims. And several other companies, uh, news outlets, private individuals, they all contributed towards this GoFundMe. And just it was just out, it was this collective coming together to give this studio just one giant hug. Like just the outpouring of grief and support and love for Kyoto Animation, both domestically and across the world, sticks in my mind as one of our darkest days of anime fandom, but also as one of coming together and mutual aid. And I know I harped on this a little bit longer than I probably meant to, but it's it's an important event. I can't just skim over the most tragic event in, in the studio's history and one of the most violent acts in Japanese recent history. But that part is done. This is how I wanted to conclude this portion of Anna, of Kyo Annie's history, not on the violence, but on the love and outpouring and support. Because this event will never be forgotten. But Kyoto Animation has also made major steps to move forward. 
Studio One has, of course, been demolished, and a memorial service is held every year. Individual families will sometimes hold more personal memorials, and, and including a few who have put on art exhibits from their uh, from the person who used to work there. But Kyoto Animation, much like Violet Evergarden herself, has many scars, but they have carried on the best that they can, and they continue to carry on and continue to innovate. They continue to push forward, and that, in the end, just speaks to the strength of character that these folks have. So getting into the story of Violet Evergarden, again, we have the main series, and then there is the side story movie. It's called Eternity and the Auto Memories Doll. And finally, Violet Evergarden, the movie. Uh, The first movie, Eternity and the Auto Memories Doll, this is strictly a side story with a couple of connecting threads. But, of course, the second movie actually concludes the story. So instead of doing these long titles all the time, I'm just going to address the projects as main series, the side story, and the finale. There are, of course, specific plot points for each project, but I'm just going to give you the overall gist of the setting and then uh, a little bit of the world design detail will be in the staff portion. So first off, the main term that you will come to know in Violet Evergarden is the auto-memory doll. This originally refers to the invention of the typewriter, but in Violet's world, this refers to the industry of writing letters on behalf of other people. Auto-memories dolls work at postal and government offices. They also travel the countryside for whoever hires them. They are essentially scribes or ghostwriters, and in Violet's time, this is a great career for women in the post-war era to land a stable income and potentially snag a rich husband in the process. So the doll aspect of the job has come to be known as how women doll themselves up. And a doll in Violet's time typically retires after she gets married. So let's dive right in. In the fictional country of Telesis, there's just concluded a great conflict that has lasted for years. This fictional countries of Leidenschaftlich and the Empire of Garderick have just finished a very bloody conflict. And even though Leiden won the war... Uh, Both countries are facing massive losses of manpower and a weakened economy. Both countries are frankly eager to move on from the conflict, and they are in full rebuild mode, as well as reconciliatory efforts, including a transcontinental railroad that bridges the gap between their two borders. They're basically separated by this large river, so this bridge is going across that river. The show opens with, I love you. These were the final words of Major Gilbert Bougainvillea to our hero, Violet. Violet is a former child soldier of Leidenschaftlich and was came to be known as their ruthless and deadly battle maiden. She was critically injured in the deciding battle, and so our story opens up with her waking up in an unknown hospital bed with mechanical arms. Her uh, She lost both of her arms in that final battle, but because of the connections and people who knew her, she has been outfitted with these mechanical prosthetics. You can basically think of them as automail from Full Metal Alchemist, but a lot more detailed. Winry Rockbell, there's no way she could have made something like this, at least at where she was as a kid. Violet has only known war and conflict and orders, but the war is over, and now she has to reintegrate into a society that is completely foreign to her. Her caretaker is a man named Claudia Hodgins, who is a friend of Gilbert and a sponsor family, the Evergardens, offered to take Violet in. Her commanding officer, Major Gilbert, has been declared MIA for several months. 
However, even though they have his dog tags, his body has not been recovered from the rubble. They have not been able to find his body. Through a various circumstances, Violet get, lands a job at the CH Postal Company, which is owned by Claudia Hodgins, and she takes upon the occupation of an auto memories doll and travels the countryside, coming into contact with various people who teach her the various emotions that she is lacking and bring her closer to the mystery and unraveling said mystery of the phrase, I love you. It's a major part of the deal. So getting into the source of Violet Evergarden, the original creator is Kana Akatsuki. She lives in Hokkaido, and this is she works as a light novelist. Violet Evergarden is actually uh, Kana's debut work. It's a heck of a debut. Uh, Kana Akatsuki has also been involved in the Sword Art Online video games, and she's also listed as a scenario writer on the 2023 title SAO Last Recollection. The novel Violet Evergarden has the distinction of winning the grand prize for the novel category in the 5th Kyoto Animation Awards. This was back in 2014, and this is the first work to ever win the grand prize in any of the categories. And so subsequently, the anime adaptation was announced in a commercial for the light novel's first volume back in May 2016. And in June 2017, Kyoto Animation announced that the Anime Expo in Los Angeles would host the world premiere of Violet Evergarden. This premiere date was July the 2nd. The European premiere followed at the Animagic in Mannheim, Germany, and C3 AFA Singapore for the Singaporean premiere. All of these were special screenings all throughout 2017 and included the first three episodes, but the series didn't officially go on the air until January 11th, 2018, where it ran for 13 episodes ending on April 5th, 2018. Later, Netflix acquired the streaming rights and hosted Violet Evergarden worldwide, except for the U.S. and Australia. We wouldn't get the show until shortly after the broadcast ended, which is a classic case of the Netflix jail. If you haven't heard of it, basically Netflix would acquire the rights to an anime. They would call it the Netflix original, and then we would not be able to see it. It would be available in all the other countries, but over here in the U.S., we're just sitting here twiddling our thumbs for 13 weeks plus waiting for the show to end and then Netflix just drops it all at once because that's their binging model. It's annoying. I'm glad they are somewhat moving away from it for anime at least because by the time they dropped the entire show, well, a lot of us would have already found alternative ways to watch the show. So by the time they dropped the whole thing, they wouldn't they weren't really capturing the numbers that they were expecting. They had to treat they have to treat anime a little bit differently. But speaking of where you can watch this, Violet Evergarden is available in full on Netflix as part of their anime originals lineup. Violet Evergarden was dubbed into English by Spliced Bread Productions, who have also handled several other Netflix acquisitions, including High Score Girl, Drifting Dragons, Dorohedoro, Forest of Piano. Basically, almost every series that Netflix has either put money into or acquired after the fact, Spliced Bread has worked on it. Funimation picked up the home distribution rights for the U.S., you also have Anime Limited for the UK and Ireland, and Madman Entertainment for Australia and New Zealand. So for the staff rundown, I'm actually able to, the reason I'm able to cover the entire scope of Violet Evergarden in this episode is because the production schedule was rather steady from the series leading up to the final film. So that's why I'm able to do everything. So there wasn't a really a time lag in between productions. They just basically went one into the other. So starting things off, we have the chief director of the series, Haruka Fujita, 
and her credit is the series production direction. It's not a standard credit. Again, anime credits are just weird. So as I understand it, Fujita is likely the head honcho on the Violet Evergarden series just as a whole. But in terms of the movie director credit, she's only listed as that for the side story. Most of her credits are key animation and in-betweens. So Violet Evergarden is actually her overall directorial debut. Uh, she started her career in 2011 with Nichijo, My Ordinary Life. And you can basically follow her up through Kyo Annie's catalog through the years after that. She's pretty much had a hand in almost everything since 2011, uh, even most recently Heavenly Delusion. She's been a prolific animator all through those years. So as for the director for the main series and the final movie, we have Taichi Ishidate. Uh, some of the credits on the storefronts, and I think the DVDs, I'd have to check them again, but the credits that I have on the storefronts deals also give uh, Haruka Fujita the director's credits for the main series as well. But by and large, I think it's Ishidate who's credited as the director. I mean, basically, they both worked on it anyways. But if you think of it like Ishidate is credited as the, as the director on the series and the movie, this kind of puts Fujita's credit as the series production direction in the kind of like the big picture perspective. But I mean, it's well enough to know that both of these folks were the head honchos on Violet Evergarden. Ishidate also had a couple of smaller roles in the main series. He, of course, directed and storyboarded and key animated the first opening, and he was also a storyboarder on the first and 13th episodes. He has been a key animator before that, so he worked on Air, Clanad, uh, Haruhi Suzumiya, and Kaon. His other directorial works are Kara no Kyokai, that's Beyond the Boundary, and its movie. And Beyond the Boundary in particular is an important part of the animation DNA for Violet Evergarden, because Beyond the Boundary was a lot more of an action series than what you would typically expect from Kyoto Animation, who generally do dramas. The head writer for series composition and screenplay, but the head writer on this project is Reiko Yoshida, and she was the main writer across all three projects. So she also is credited for writing uh, several other projects, including uh, Kaleidostar, K-On, the Bakuman series, Girls on Panzer, uh, Blue Period, and the Heike Monogatari, a work by Yuasa. Reiko Yoshida is also a pretty good manga author in her own right. She is the creator and writer for the Tokyo Mew Mew and the Romeo x Juliet manga series. And she also did series composition on the Romeo Juliet anime. And she even has a little bit of involvement with music. She wrote the lyrics for a few songs in Girls on Panzer. So a very versatile uh, writer all around. Getting into the character designer and the chief animation director. Again, this is the same person across all three projects. So this is Akiko Takase, the same illustrator for the Violet Evergarden light novel. She is a light novel illustrator and animator. She started in 2014 as a key animator on Love, Chunibyo, and Other Delusions, Heartthrob. I think that was the movie. She also contributed key animation for Sound Euphonium series and the film A Silent Voice. Takase also contributed key animation for the opening credit sequence of the Violet Evergarden series. And while working on Evergarden, Takase also worked as an animation director on episodes of Free, Dive to the Future. I think that was one of the movies. Also, the Sorone uh, Kazumai High School Kyoto Club. So again, that's the traditional archery one. So she was very busy in the middle of all of this. The art director is Mikiko Watanabe. She is a background artist and art director. 
she is the art director and also the art design works for the full series of Violet, Violet Evergarden. Also contributed some background work for several episodes on the main series, including the opening and ending credits, as well as artwork for the first two trailers to advertise the show. She started her career with Kyoto Animation in 2009 with backgrounds for K-On! and Haruhi Suzumiya. As for the rest of her career, well, she worked on basically the rest of Kyoto Annie's catalog up until the Sound Euphonium, the movie, Our Promise, A Brand New Day in 2019. Uh, sadly, Watanabe is no longer with us. Also in the art department, we have the art design credit for Joji Unoguchi, he sat next to Watanabe, and he is also credited with the 3D art designs. He worked on the CG for the show. He's had a long career with Kyoto Animation from back in the studio's founding days. So he was part of the team that did the in-between animation checks for Crusher Joe and Kimagure Orange Road. He works as an art director, a background artist, and a 3D art designer. And we also have Studio Blue contributing to the backgrounds. And so Studio Blue is a Korean in-between and background production company they work a lot with Kyoto Animation, so I figured I would give them the shout out here. And one of the more unique credits is you have World Design slash World Research. And this is Takaki Suzuki. He is a graduate of the Hokkaido University Department of Western Philosophy, Faculty of Letters. Suzuki is a freelance writer who specializes in military and historical research. Very important for Violet Evergarden. And he utilizes all of this for science fiction settings in anime. So his main work has been with Strike Witches. He also contributed to Girls on Panzer. He contributed to Last Exile. That's a Studio Gonzo work with airships. He also did the original draft and script for High School Fleet. And all of Violet Evergarden is this kind of post-World War I society, if you would think like particularly post-war Europe. This is very evident by the dress and mannerisms of the characters. So the time period would be roughly equivalent to the late 1910s, maybe the early 20s. For Europe, you have the changing styles of clothing, the vehicles in the port town of Leiden, where much of the show takes place, or at least like that's Violet's home base. The vehicles are about the equivalent of Model T's. You have trains that basically run the schedule. The electric light is present, but it's not quite implemented everywhere. It's still very much a novel thing. In some ways, I find Violet's world is more similar than not to the world of Full Metal Alchemist. I mean, if you just want a really blunt comparison, it's kind of like Full Metal Alchemist, just minus all of the alchemy and magic, obviously. And like I said earlier, Violet herself is sporting two automale arms. They function fully like real arms, and her hands are delicate enough to work the typewriter. And there are multiple moments through the show where she you know, pops these arms open and is fiddling with various settings, and she has the different screwdrivers, and she's performing maintenance. So you get a good look at the internal workings of her arms and her hands. So she has basically various settings that she can put her hands to to match her tasks. The military uniform and equipment of the Leiden Schaffleck army, in turn, looks very, uh, frankly, it just looks very World War I Germany. However, the town and people of Leiden seem more like a post-war British society. The town name and locations have this very European flair, but there's also no particular direction or strong regional accents in either dub. If in the English dub, it's pretty much just generic American. But of course, this is a Japanese production, so you do have a few customs present, mainly being the culture of bowing, 
The CH Postal Company crew also sometimes goes out for Japanese food. You got one guy who's very, he's all about yakisoba. And of course you have Claudia and Benedict who are two, or the, the president and one of the mail carriers. They're rather handy with chopsticks. Getting into the sound and music, we have the sound director, Yota Suroka. He is the founder and director of Rakuonsha. This is a sound production f- studio for film and anime. So Rakuonsha also handled Violet Evergarden. And he works pretty closely with Kyoto Animation, and he also works pretty closely with Studio Sunrise. So Tsuroka's name will be a familiar name moving forward. The music composer, here's an interesting name, Evan Call. Hmm, who's this guy? Evan is an American composer and arranger working in Japan. He graduated from Berkeley, and he started his career with Symphogear G back in 2013, and Symphogear is a battle series where they fight using music. He's also done the score for Apare Ranman, Jose the Tiger and the Fish, Muv Love Alternative. He's working on uh, My Happy Marriage right now, and he's also composing for the upcoming fall 2023 series, Friedrin Beyond Journey's End. For actual music production work, we have The Heart Company, Lantis, and Miracle Bus. Uh, Evan Call works for Miracle Bus. And Shigeru Saito is the music producer. He's worked on Lucky Star, Hidamari Sketch. He was uh, most recently the music producer for Jose the Tiger and the Fish, uh, Miss Kobayashi's Dragon Maid, and last spring's Otaku Elf. You can find that one over on High Dive. It's it's cute show. He is a former music producer with Lantis, and he later founded the Heart Company in 2018. So that's how we have basically three different sound companies working on Violet Evergarden. Getting further into the music, we have the opening theme, Sincerely, by True. This is the alias of, this is the stage name of Miho Karasawa, the singer. She also contributes vocals for the OVA episode, which I mentioned earlier, but I consider Violet Evergarden's main series to technically have 14 episodes because the 13 main series and then the OVA is just this standard episode length and it's a standalone story where Violet has to write this love letter for an opera singer, but the love letter is not what Violet or any of her co-workers are expecting. So it's everyone having to come together to figure out this love letter. Uh, True also provides vocals for the opera singer in question. Her name is Irma, and Irma sings two songs. You have the songstress aria to open the show, and the closing song is called Letter. The ending theme for Violet Evergarden is Michi Shirube. This is Guidepost, is what that translates to. This is Minori Chihara. She is a singer and a voice actress. She has also contributed to Minami K. Again, The Melancholy of Haruhi Suzumiya. Again, that's a big one. And recently, Beyond the Boundary. She also has a couple of additional music credits later on, and she voices one of the characters in the show, actually. And so I'm going to save her later music credits for where they appear. Both women also contributed vocals to songs, the Song Letters, which is a vocal album made after the main series wrapped up. This features music that's not present in the show. Evan Call also had a hand in composing and arranging all of the insert songs across all Violet Evergarden projects, including the album. And so now we're going to jump into the character segment, which again, I'm just going to cover the main characters because Violet Evergarden, the show, is very episodic with a couple of highlights for a side cast, but most of the characters that we meet 
don't really make an appearance after their one episode arc is concluded. Violet herself is this person who drifts in and out of people's lives, only touching for a brief moment, but the experience is unforgettable every time. So the main cast basically includes Violet and her co-workers who are present all through the finale, and there are a couple of extra side story characters that, again, will appear in the uh, side story and the finale. So first off, we have Violet Evergarden herself. In Japanese, she is voiced by Yui Ishikawa. You may recognize her also as Mikasa Ackerman from Attack on Titan. Uh, Yui Ishikawa is also the voice of 2B from Near Automata. You're going to be hearing a lot about Nier Automata in this casting deal. I was kind of chuckling the whole time, but basically both the English and the Japanese cast of Nier Automata is present for Violet Evergarden. So Yui Ishikawa is just perfect delivery for Violet Evergarden at the, at the beginning of the show. Violet's very flat and quite literally robotic at the beginning of the show, so this is perfect casting. Her English actor is Erica Harlacher. Harlacher, I hope I got that right. And this is the voice of An Takamaki from Persona 5. She's also voice of Shinobu from Demon Slayer. And she's also Princess Asalium vs. Lucia. I probably butchered that. But this is Aldo Noah Zero. So I'm very familiar, familiar with Erica's work as An in Persona 5. Then we have the major, Gilbert Bougainvillea. His Japanese actor is Daisuke Namikawa. He voices Rokuro Okajima from Black Lagoon. He's also the voice of Yu Narukami from Persona 4. Also, this is a big one because Daisuke Namikawa, I'm going to go off on a tangent just for a brief instance, and spoiler alert, it's going to be about Lupin the Third, because Daisuke-san is the voice of Goemon Ishikawa from Lupin the Third franchise. Uh, this is He's been the voice of Goemon since 2011. This is Blood Seal of the Eternal Mermaid. Daisuke succeeded the original actor, Makio Inoue, who had voiced the character since Lupin the Third Part 2. This is in 1977. So the guy had voiced this one character from 77 to about 2011. This is a big deal because the legacy of Lupin the Third is a long tradition of holding on to the original actors. This anime has been going on since like 1969 across various projects. And the original cast was only phased out because quite honestly, they got too damn old to voice the characters. In fact, the last holdout for from the original cast of Lupin the Third was Kiyoshi Kobayashi. This man was born in 1933 and was the voice of Daisuke Jigen from the pilot episode of Lupin the Third in 1969. He voiced this character from 1969 all the way to 2021. And that was the part six, because there's an episode zero of Lupin the Third part six that is a farewell to Kobayashi as the voice of Jigen. And starting in episode one, he was succeeded by Akio Otsuka. So Lupin the Third, like Daisuke has got himself like a major role. He's basically set with with that character. This is this is a big deal. So I just wanted to go on a Lupin the Third tangent again. And here's another fun one, because I just like finding these. Daisuke-san is the official Japanese dub over voice artist for American actors Elijah Wood and the Canadian actor Hayden Christensen. So yes, if you listen, if you just find yourself listening to the Japanese dubs of Lord of the Rings and Star Wars episodes one through three of Hayden Christensen, this is Daisuke Namikawa. And before I forget, of course, Gilbert is voiced in English by Tony Azzolino. This is Aoba the Tiger from Beastars and Sebastian from the mecha series Kuromukuro. 
Claudia Hodgins. This is the friend and superior officer to Gilbert during the war. And Claudia becomes Violet's caretaker and boss at the postal company that he started after the war. So in Japanese, Claudia is voiced by Takehito Koyasu. Like, look, this guy's been a longtime voice actor since like 1989. He's also a singer. He is the original creator of Rice Cruise, which in English is uh, basically Night Hunters. He's been the name of Mula Flaga from the Gundam Seed series, Ryosuke Takahashi from Initial D. He's also been, he's also voiced the main character Ran Fujimiya from Weisskreutz. And as a singer, he's contributed vocals for songs in the Fushugi Yugi series. He's been in Sergeant Frog, Shaman King, and the, or also the 2021 Shaman King. And of course, he's sung for Weisskreutz. In English, Claudia is voiced by Kyle McCarley. And this may be a little hard to tell, but you may recognize this fellow as 9S from Near Automata. He's doing a very different voice in this show, but you could probably hear a little bit of 9S. He's also the voice of Shigeo Mob Kagayama from Mob Psycho 100, except for the final season because Crunchyroll sucks. Dietfried Bougainvillea. This is Gilbert's brother and a Navy captain. And if you're talking about a post-war antagonist sort of for Violet, he's not around in the show too much, but he's very much an, an antagonist figure in her life when he does show up because he va- he blames Violet for Gilbert's death. He only views her as a tool for war. And for a lot of the show, he's a relatively one-dimensional character as it's still clear that he's grieving, but he's he kind of the, the show doesn't really give him time to be anything else other than kind of an asshole. But he does soften a little bit over the series and he has moments where he's realizing, oh, Violet is making all these changes and she really is different. She really is a person. So he reaches this kind of a mutual understanding with Violet at the end of the series. And he fully reconciles with her during the movie as well, as he begins to open up memory about memories about his brother and their childhood. I think the movie made some real steps to round out his character. I think the series left Violet and Deep Freed in a relatively good spot, or at least like they were at a neutral part where they both acknowledged each other. But the movie really made some good steps to round out his character. So it's a, uh, don't don't count him out just yet. Deep Freed is voiced by Hidenobu Kiyuchi, who is the Japanese dub over voice for Paul Rudd. Hidenobu has also been the voice for Hei from Dark and the Black, Kenzo Tenma from Naoki Urasawa's Monster. And just because I want to include this one, he's also been... David Eagle from Hajime no Ippo Rising. That is basically the third season of Hajime no Ippo. In English, Dietfried is voiced by Keith Silverstein. He, this guy has a long list of video game and acting roles in anime, but you may recognize him in the English dub as Masayoshi Shido from Persona 5. And he also voices Vector the Crocodile from Sonic. So two very different voice acting takes, but he, he just had this list a mile long, and I just kind of said, okay, Persona 5 and Sonic, we're, we're moving on. One of his standout anime performances from the 2000s is the main antagonist, Johan Liebert from Monster. And if you want a more recent performance, he is the Viking Floki from the Netflix dub of Vinland Saga. So that more or less rounds out the main cast. I did throw Dietfried in to the main cast, even though he's more of a side character, but he is important to Violet's development. Violet's co-workers are more like the true side characters. They each have a little bit of an episode or a mini arc concerning them, 
But after that, they mostly go off and they do their own thing. So getting into the dolls first, there are three other dolls who work at the CH Postal Company. We have the first woman, Catalea Baudelaire. In Japanese, she is voiced by Aya Endo, who voices Silky from Agent Magus Bride. That's a joke because Silky doesn't have any voice lines. So instead, I'm going to say she also voices uh, Alexandra Heath in Ancient Magus Bride. That's the Caterpillar nurse. Don't ask. She voices Sword Maiden from Goblin Slayer. She also voices the Pokemon League champion Cynthia from the Pokemon Generations web series. In English, Catalea is voiced by Reba Burr, who voices Nikaido in Dorohedoro and Leo Shinmei from Kuromukuro. Iris Canary is the next doll, and she is voiced by Haruku Tomatsu, who is the voice of Lala Develuk from To Love Ru, and also Megumi Shimizu from Shiki. So Iris Canary's English voice actor is Cherami Lee. This is A2 from Near Automata, and of course it's anime. Of course, a returning member of the voice cast, Patty Thompson from Soul Eater, and also Yukiha, Yukina Shirahane from Kuromokuro. I also just found a lot of Kuromokuro side, so it's a decent mecha series. You should, you should check it out on Netflix. Also, as a side note, she voices Amelia from Trigun Badlands Rumble, but this is uh, Amelia as a child, not as adult Amelia. Erica Brown is the third co-worker. She is voiced by Minori Chihara. This is the same Chihara who sings the ending credit song, so this is our singer. Chihara also voices Nagano Yuki from The Disappearance of Nagano Yuki. That is a side movie off of The Melancholy of Haruhi Suzumiya. And of course, Minori has a couple of additional music credits in the series. We'll get to those, I promise. In English, Erica Brown is voiced by Christine Marie Cabanos, who voices Nina Klein from Aldnoa Zero. Uh, also, Maya Ibuki from the Netflix dub of Neon Genesis Evangelion and its two movies. But she's also the voice of Rebecca from One Piece. And then not so much a co-worker, but a friend of Violet's who went through school with her. This is Luculia Marlborough. And this is Violet's first friend through the Doll Training Academy. Violet basically had to go to an academy to get certified to become a doll. Her actress, Luculia's actress, is Azusa Tadakoro, who is a voice actress and singer associated with Hori Productions. Her first main role was the character Aoi Kiria from the anime adaptation of the collectible card game Aikatsu, which is basically you just use cards to help aspiring idols like singer performers pass auditions. But this was one of those roles that really opened the door for her in future voice actor roles and radio programs. She's primarily a singer, so I don't I didn't really find too many uh, voice acting credits that I was like, oh, this is a main character from such and so. In English, Laculia is voiced by Kira Buckland. So say hello to 2B from Near Automata. And with that, I believe we have A2, 9S, and 2B all through. Look at this. We have the entire cast. Uh, briefly, covering the postmen, we have Benedict Blue, who's voiced by Koki Uchiyama, and he voices the main character Natsuno Yuki from the horror series Shiki. He also voices Raku Ichigo from Nisekoi, as well as Akira Fudo and the Devilman from Devilman Crybaby. And most recently, Koki Uchiyama has voiced Legato Blue Summers in Trigun Stampede. So look forward to more of him in a few months. In English, Benedict is voiced by Ben Pronsky. This is Tukasa Tsukasa Fuji, who's a best friend to our main character Taki from the film Your Name. 
He's also uh, plays a character named Harklight from the second season of Ald Noah Zero. Roland, he's another postman, and uh, this is basically Santa Claus if he worked at a postal company. Like, Roland is just straight up Santa Claus. Uh, In Japanese, he's voiced by Riki Kagami. He's got a a lot of side character voice roles, particularly for the 27 adaptation of Berserk. And if you remember a 2015 series animated by MAPPA called Punchline, Riki Kagami is the commentator on that show. In English, Roland is voiced by Doug Earnholtz. And by and large, he is the voice of Inspector Zenigata from Lupin the Third English dubs. And so that kind of wraps it up for the main series is like a lot of the discussion. There's going to be more of a general discussion of Violet Evergarden as a whole in the review roundup. So any sort of story specifics I'm saving for the review roundup just because I found it easier for pacing. So with that being said, we're going to jump into the side story. This is the side story, Eternity and the Auto Memories Doll. And this plot summary, I just ripped it straight from the Anime News Network Encyclopedia. So the general setup is you have the Drossel royal family uh, pull some strings to have Violet tutor Isabella York, who is a student as a prestigious girl's school for her upcoming debut. Isabella may have a well-connected father, but as Violet befriends her, she discovers that this debutante has an unhappy past of poverty and separation. But with Benedict's help, Benedict Blue's help, and with the emotional power of letters, Violet sets out to reconnect Isabella with her past. So the director for Eternity and the Auto Memories doll, again, this is the one where Haruka Fujita is credited as the director, but Taichi Ishidate is credited with supervision. So he's like a director's supervisor. So again, it's that weird thing of, okay, they were kind of just both there. We have the main writer, Reiko Yoshida, again. We have the character designer and chief animation director, Akiko Takase, and a new and a new credit for Miku Katawaki, also a chief animation director. So this is a co-credit. So Miku Katawaki is a character designer and the chief animation director for Beyond the Boundary. She was also the character designer for Miss Kobayashi's Dragon Maid. And I mean, all other credits like the music and other things are largely the same. I'd just be repeating myself further on world design and the music, but. I will say in terms of animation, there is a notable upscale in animation quality, which it feels crazy for me to say that because the main series already looked like it was animated with a movie level budget. The CG is even better. It's just cleaner. The detail on clothing in this show is just unfair. And there's even a really nice ballroom dancing scene. The characters are a few years older. There are a couple of more wardrobe and hairstyle changes, but largely everybody looks the same. The setting is about three, four, no, I think it's four years after the war. Yeah, I wrote it down. That's four years after the war. So getting into our new characters, we have two. Of course, there is Isabella York. She is voiced by Minato Kotobuki, who she's a songstress. She's an actress also for the stage and film. She's a voice actress, a very flexible uh, personality. But a couple of voices, uh, Minato has voiced Sarah Farron from the Final Fantasy XIII series, also Konami from Persona 4 Dancing All Night. She was also the voice of Gigi from the Kiki's Delivery Service live-action film. That's the 2014 film. In English, Isabella York was voiced by Maggie O'Connor. This is Akane Hasegawa from Persona 5 Strikers. 
This is also the Yorha Commander from Near Automata. So again, it's more Near Automata. But also, you may recognize her from as the voice of Sora Takenouchi from Digimon Adventure and Digimon Adventure Try. And secondly, we have the girl named Taylor Bartlett. In Japanese, she's voiced by Aoi Yuki, who is Madoka Kaname of Madoka Magica fame. Also, Sunako Kirishiki from the horror series Shiki. And again, another Near Automata credit. This is Pascal. In English, Taylor Bartlett is voiced by Sandy Fox, who voices Sumamo from Chobits, and also the Tachikoma from the, the little robots from Ghost in the Shell standalone complex. So a couple things of note regarding this movie, just what has changed since the main series concluded. The general timeline is four years now after the end of the war. Violet has ridden the Transcontinental Railroad in order to reach the school, which is stated to be roughly four-day journey from the port city of Leiden. And in Leiden itself, there are a couple of changes happening in the city. There is a part of the city now called Newtown. It's a new part of the town. And also just restoring the area. Newtown is also a hot spot for new technologies. So there is a radio tower in the process of being built. You have the electric light is making its way through the city street lamps. You have the invention of the elevator and the early advent of the telephone. The CH Postal Company has it, but the telephone is not quite a household thing. But the radio tower is said, like once the radio tower is done, the telephone is basically going to become a household thing. Also, the doll occupation is changing. As the telephone is becoming more uh, readily available, it, the doll occupation is kind of starting to see its first instances of kind of being put on the back foot. Also, just in general, women are becoming more career-focused rather than just using their doll work to snag a rich husband. And like I uh, would probably say about the episode in the main series, Violet is, once again, not really the focal part point of this story. She is, she, she's, not, she's still not passive. She's still far from passive. But like the main series up until the last couple episodes, Violet is kind of like the enabler for the other characters of the film. Because this is kind of a tale of two movies. The first half or so focuses on Isabella's three-month debutante training, and then we just leave her behind completely to focus on Taylor Bartlett. And Taylor is a war orphan who Isabella took in while back in the day, while Isabella was just barely surviving on the streets herself. In fact, Isabella York was born Amy Bartlett. Her mother was a mistress to the prestigious York family, and this is the family that has ties to the royal Drossel family, who at one point Violet wrote a couple of letters for. So she has, there's, there's a couple of these connecting threads to where the Drossel family basically was talking to the York guy going, hey, we know a lady who can uh, help, out your, help out your Isabella. Because the head of the York family tracked Amy down and offered her a place in his family as well as to take care of Taylor. And Amy agreed because, frankly, like the, the two of them were starving, starving. So even though Amy agrees, the two girls are immediately separated and Taylor ends up at an orphanage sponsored by the Drossel Royal family. Because I'm going to be honest, getting into the first half of the film, I found the reasoning for Violet to be at the school like rather flimsy, but also the folks at the CH Postal Company are also sitting around scratching their head. Like, what qualifications does Violet, a scribe in particular, have 
to train a debutante, like training this girl for high society. But at the same time, it's not like they can just say, oh, thank you, royal family. We will, you know, we're going to turn down your request. You don't do that to the royal family. So at the very least, even though the reasoning for Violet to be at this academy training a high society lady, despite having no experience, I like that the writers at least kind of said, yeah, we know this is shaky ground. But overall, the presentation in the first half of this movie is a bit interesting because also a thing that I was kind of scratching my head over, but it was also just in service of the film, Violet's dress and mannerisms in this arc of the film are uh, more masculine than she's ever really shown in the deal. Like She's always been tough, but the whole point of the show is like it's always been because of her military bearing, like her military training. So it's not that she's manly in any way. It's just that she's has this military air about her and she's very strict. But because of this whole bearing, the show puts her more like in pants and suits. And the, the entire time in the first series, she's wearing a dress and a very frilly dress at that. So it's just kind of different to see her dressing and taking on more like the role of a more masculine role at the start of this film. It's a new it's a new side of her. And because of this, the girls at the Academy start referring to Violet as the Princess Knight. And strangely, the movie also gets a little sensual just out of nowhere. Like, Violet and Isabella just have a lot of these conversations and interactions where I'm just kind of going, how much of this should I be reading into? Like, they even take a bath together. And while both of the girls are wearing towels, everything's completely covered up, like, we're seeing a lot more of Violet than has ever been showed before. But it's also an interesting look at how her arms join her shoulders. Because up to this point, we've only seen maybe like up to the elbow, a little bit of the upper arm a couple times in the show. So now, at least you have this bath scene where it's like, oh, that's how her arms are fully attached. Like, that's how they're kind of just working in there. So that part was at least interesting. And I get that these two girls were around each other like 24-7. Still, I mean, it's not out of character for Violet. It's just different. It's a different side of her. And it's also strange to me because with the whole breadth of the series and the movies in front of me, this is the only time that Violet acts like this. So it's just like she's like this and then she's no longer acting like it. It's like it never happened. But another fun detail is we get to see Violet's hair in a couple of new styles because Isabella gets around to playing with Violet's hair. So we get to see Violet with pigtails. She starts sporting a ponytail. And (laughs) even at one point, uh, Isabella styles it up and she says, Ooh, look, cinnamon buns and Violet's over there looking like a blonde princess Leia. It's very cute. So all of this being said, despite the flimsy nature of the flimsy reasoning of Violet being at this academy, it turns out Violet was the perfect person to send to Isabella because she can relate to her on a personal level at the whole war situation and being an orphan. And so during their three months together, they become very close friends. And on the final day, Isabella asks Violet to write a letter to Taylor, but address it as Amy Bartlett. Because again, Isabella has not seen Taylor for a long time, and she knows that Taylor is being taken care of, but again, she's probably not going, in her mind, she's probably never going to see Taylor again, but at least she gave the girl an opportunity. So this is kind of like her one last little, hey, can you just, I want to send a letter to my sister. Which brings us into the second half of the movie, which surprised me at first, because the first time I was watching this film, I thought the entire movie was just going to be the debutante training. But by the time we get to about the 38 minute mark, and especially at the 45 minute mark, all that's done. 
and we're just going to an entirely different character. And the focus on the second half is surprisingly on Benedict, on the postman Benedict, because he's, by the time this movie rolls around, he's been at this job for a while and he's kind of starting to burn out a little bit from just all the routine. However, three years prior to the start of the film, so if we were to go back for a second, the whole debutante training with Violet and Isabella, that is one year after the war ends. Then Violet writes a letter, Benedict delivers the letter to Taylor, and then this is now three years after that. So Benedict was the person who delivered Isabella's letter to Taylor Bartlett, and that in turn inspired young Taylor to want to become a postal worker because Benedict basically delivered happiness to her. He delivered, you know, he, he delivered a message from her sister, and she thought that was just so cool. I want to, she's like, I want to do that. Taylor has a couple of obstacles in front of her. First off, she's very small. She's still very young, so she's too young to work. The second one is she's illiterate, so she can't read addresses. While she stays in Leiden as a what they're calling an, an apprentice mail carrier, Violet teaches her how to read and write, which, I mean, I don't think I need to elaborate on how cool that is. It's just something else from Violet's past of, Major Gilbert teaching her to read and write, something that comes full circle. This part of the movie really feels like it's Benedict's story, because when Isabella is eventually married off after graduating from the school, she basically disappears off the map, and Taylor wants to send a letter to her sister Amy Bartlett in turn, so it basically falls upon Benedict's shoulders to track down Isabella York, aka Amy Bartlett. And in doing all of this, his passion for his work is reignited. And it was also another fun detail that Benedict was looking at the face of all this work and he looked at Claudia and said, I'm going to do this, but in return, you need to give me something as well. So in doing all of this, Claudia replaced Benedict's old beat-up bike with this new yellow motorcycle with a sidecar as thanks. And it's that motorcycle that Benedict and Taylor drive to Isabella's house. I do like that at the end of it all, Taylor is adopted into the Evergarden family at the end of the movie. So Violet now has a little sister in Taylor Bartlett, which I find a a cute little detail. The closing credit song for the film is Amy, again, sung by Minori Chihara. And this was composed and arranged by Daisuke Kikuta, who's part of a group called Elements Garden, which Evan Call has also been a part of. So the release and reception for this movie uh, Violet Evergarden, Eternity in the Auto Memory Doll, held its world premiere at the Animagic Convention in Germany on August 3rd, 2019, which the organizers of the convention revealed that the decision to continue the film's release following the arson attack at Kyoto Animation was at the express request of the studio. Because again, as a reminder, the arson attack has happened less than a month ago on July 18th. And the film released in Japan on September 6, 2019, initially for a two-week screening run. This turned into a three-week screening run and then was extended beyond four weeks. This is also the first KyoAni film to be screened in China. And this screening was in January 10, 2020. And then uh, later that year on February 17, 2020, Funimation released this film in the U.S., and then Anime Limited released the film in the UK on March 1st. So this brings us into the final part, final movie, 
or the finale, as I call it, Vinyl Evergarden, the movie. So as we begin to close out the story, the focus of the narrative swings fully back to Violet herself. The end of the series, I think, left her in a relatively good place, but there was still plenty of room for her to develop further, and there's a couple final lessons to learn. So Violet, the story of this one is, Violet is commissioned initially to write a letter on the behalf of a terminally ill boy for his family, causing this causes some like old wounds to reopen. At this point, Violet has been an auto-memories doll for some years now, but she's still processing the loss of Major Gilbert. And all this time, officially, he's been labeled as missing in action, but it's also been four years. So it's not like we're back to square one with Violet's development. It's more like some wounds just take longer to heal or sometimes they just never fully recover. And the framing of this narrative is also interesting because we open the film actually sometime in the future. I'm talking 50 years in the future where we have the granddaughter of Anne Magnolia, who is this little girl. Anne Magnolia was the little girl from episode 10 of the main series who had the sick mom. And the her. so this is talking about her granddaughter, Daisy Magnolia. Daisy finds the letters that Violet wrote for Anne Magnolia all those years ago. And this inspires Daisy to track down stories about the now legendary writer. And following this trail leads her to the former uh, space of the CH Postal Company, which is now a museum dedicated to its history and that of auto memories dolls, where Daisy then uncovers a clue that leads her to find out the story behind Violet's journey in the final movie. So again, we have the director, Taichi Ichidate, Akiko Takase returns as the character designer and chief animation director. A couple of new characters now. We have Daisy Magnolia. In Japanese, she's voiced by Sumire Sumire Morihoshi. This is Mina Nono from Insomniacs After School. She also voices Mari from Words Bubble Up Like Soto Pop. That's a very fun movie. And also the Japanese actress for Vanellope von Schweetz from the Japanese dub of Wreck-It Ralph in Ralph Breaks the Internet. Daisy Magnolia is voiced by Brittany Cox in English. She voices Finna Houtman from Finna Pirate Princess, also Ingrid from Fire Emblem's Three Houses and Fire Emblem Three Hopes. Ulysses is our next character, and this is the terminally ill uh, boy who Violet writes letters for. He is voiced by Kari Mizuhashi, and she's been around a while. She's the voice of Navi from The Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time. She also voices the character Noriko from Persona 2 Eternal Punishment. She also sings the opening song for Hidamari's sketch series and voices a character named Miyako. This is also Mami and Tatsuya from the Madoka Magica series. In English, Ulysses is voiced by Anne Yatko, who she's voiced various characters in Genshin Impact, including Raiden Shogun. She also voices a side character, uh, Lillian, as well as Iris's, Iris Canary's mother in the fourth episode of Violet Evergarden. We have a couple of new songs for the film, so Minori Chihara returns with a rearrangement of Guidepost for the film, that's sung near the end. Uh, Miho Karasawa also returns for the vocals, that's true, and so she sings the ending credits songs, Will, and the lyrics are also credited to her as well. So getting into what has changed since we have last left Violet and crew. The radio tower from the first movie is is almost complete. Uh, Education is also said to be on the rise, so more people are becoming literate. 
the telephone, or as Iris Canary calls it, the horrible machine, is becoming more widely available as well. So now the presence of auto memories dolls is becoming less of a necessity and more of a novelty occupation. We also have the telegram. So all of these factors combined will soon render the doll's occupation obsolete. And by the time of Daisy Magnolia enters the picture, this job occupation has been just obsolete for a couple of years. And so again, this movie still takes place roughly four years after the war. So it's not been too long since the end of the first film, maybe a year or so. And in fact, the first 20 minutes or so of this movie acts as a TLDR for Violet's journey up to this point. And at this point, Violet is now the most popular doll in Leiden and has recently composed a hymn for the sea as part of a yearly tradition of thanksgiving for people across the continent. But in recent years, this has been repurposed as a mourning period for the dead. Violet has also written the coronation speech for the now King Damien of Flugels. This is the same royal couple from earlier. This is episode five where Violet was involved with doing like these public love letters. But as the plot gets going proper, uh, Violet takes a sudden job to write the letters on behalf of the uh, boy named Yuris to give to his family on the day of his death. So a rather heavy job to be sure. Violet has also been visiting the grave of the Bougainvillea matriarch, uh, Gilbert and Dietfried's mother, who's recently passed away. She visits to her grave once a month to offer flowers. And this, in turn, results in her crossing paths with Dietfried Bougainvillea in the graveyard. So I said it before, I find this part of the film interesting because over the series, Dietfried has gone from just completely unlikable, bitter, grief-stricken brother to a less bitter but still distant compatriot of Violet. But this is the first time in the movie where the two of them actually have a proper conversation. And in fact, this entire time, Claudia Hodgins, he and Dietfried just really don't like each other. And he is against Violet meeting with Dietfried in any capacity. However, Catalea Baudelaire makes the observation that it's, it's been a long time. Violet and Dietfried are both still mourning the loss of Gilbert. So it may actually be to both of their benefits to talk together, since Violet and Dietfried were the closest people to Major Gilbert. And they could help each other precisely because they are hurting in the same way. And again, I really like this part of the movie because, like I said, Dietfried's character makes some real strides towards recovery, and he in turn opens up to Violet about his childhood. So namely, their dad was very strict. And Dietfried resented his dad and the family legacy and was constantly butting heads with the dad. So it was Gilbert who ended up being chosen as the successor. And Dietfried in turn blames his own stubbornness for basically railroading Gilbert as he sees it into the military life. He's always felt like that he robbed Gilbert of the chance to choose the path for himself, his own path of life. And ultimately, this railroading Gilbert into the military lifestyle is what killed him. So Dietfried's been carrying that for a while. The Like I said, I want to jump back to the beginning of the film for a second because the film actually opens... Uh, 50, I said 50 years earlier. It's really more like 60 years in the future. And it's set just after the funeral for Anne Magnolia. And in the process of being sad about her grandmother and getting into an argument with her parents, Daisy happens upon the letters that Anne received from the postal company for 50 years on her birthday. And it's in reading those letters that inspires her to 
track down the woman who wrote all those letters years ago, so Violet Evergarden. And in Daisy's time, Violet Evergarden is a famous doll who just suddenly vanished from the news cycle after her retirement from doll work at the age of 18. So again, this is where Daisy travels to Leiden and finds the CH Postal Company Museum. And I have a couple of extra details about what has been going on since then. So since the end of the, since this time leading into Daisy's time, the postal service has been nationalized. There's a, the company runs the postal service now instead of various private companies. The museum curator is actually a former employee. And if you pause the movie at a certain spot, you can, there's a shot of a black and white company photo. I think this is like the company photo, right? As the company was probably being closed down. Uh, while Violet is not in the picture, I didn't see her. I think there's a child next to Benedict and Erica. I think this is Taylor Bartlett. In the black and white uh, photograph, you have these uniforms, the CH Postal Company uniforms, or these bright blue uh, vests. Well, Taylor has this bright red hair. And in black and white, her hair blends in with this blue uniform. And it's also just kind of grainy. So I'm pretty sure that's her, especially with that smile. But again, her hair kind of disappears into the uniform, so I wasn't entirely sure, but I'm 90% sure. So you have, so to kind of catch up, you have one storyline with Daisy tracking down Violet. We have the second storyline with Violet and Dietfried talking together. Also, Violet has just written these letters for this sick kid. And now we have the third and final arc of the film, where it gets kicked off where with Claudia and Benedict are walking through the CH Postal Company's storeroom. This is basically a storeroom of unsent and returned letters, like no addresses or no uh, senders to give to. And it's through the storeroom there where they dumble, where they stumble upon a particular letter with some very familiar handwriting. Claudia then brings this letter to Dietfried, who also recognizes the handwriting. And so Claudia and Violet head for the island of Eckhart, which is a small community, isolated community, formerly occupied by the Garderick Empire, but gained its independence shortly after the war. And basically all three storylines come to a head in a cart. And the subject of who is the person who wrote this letter. Hmm. Because remember, Major Gilbert, his body was never recovered. They only ever found the dog tags. So getting into the release and reception for Violet Evergarden, the movie, we had the teaser trailer and the first key visual for the movie were uh, both released in April of 2019. The movie was originally slated for a January 2020 release, but this was, of course, pushed back to April of 2020 after the Studio One fire. The film's second teaser trailer and key visual were then released in February and March 2020, respectively. But then a second delay was announced going into 2020, this time because of the COVID-19 outbreak. So finally, at long last, Violet Evergarden the movie was released to Japanese theaters on September 18th, 2020, and it ranked at number two on its opening weekend. This movie was also released in the Dolby Cinema on November 13th, which makes it the first standalone Japanese animated film to do so, as opposed to the previous Gundam compilation trilogy films. Also, for the Dolby Theater moviegoers, they handed out commemorative art cards, and these were stylized like postcards, so a very nice little touch. And then in October 2021, Netflix began streaming Violet Evergarden the movie in the U.S. 
And this time, it's Crunchyroll Company, not the Funimation, released the Violet Evergarden movie on Blu-ray and 4K starting on May 30th, 2023. In fact, my copy arrived in the mail just before I uh, recorded this episode. And so once again, we find ourselves at the review roundup. First of all, there was just so many notes that I took. I took pages and pages of notes on all the cool details that I noticed, and it was hard to condense it all into this episode because Violet Evergarden is just an incredibly detail-oriented anime. Like, honestly, I've, I've said it before, the animation quality is just absolutely top-notch. This looks like movie-quality stuff. The landscapes and backgrounds are just drop-dead gorgeous. Everything, like the greens, I just haven't seen any more vivid greens at all. The city environments are just, just classic European. You also have other places like Iris Canary, her background is kind of like Spanish, maybe Portuguese a little bit there. So her place has more of the adobe and the terracotta tile roofs. Also just kind of like out there in the countryside. Just the entire country of Leiden and Garderick are just shown off in just excruciatingly beautiful detail. Everything about the show is just top-notch quality. That includes the people. Everybody in this show is just drop-dead gorgeous. The people in this anime are all very distinct. There's a generous mix of skin tones and cultures as well. I mean, this people in this show look beautiful, even when caked in mud and blood on the battlefield. Like, there's just so many small details in the face. The eyes are just, you can just lose yourself in the eyes. The hair, the work on the hair is just like, it's, it's the kind of detail work that on any other show, an animator would just be pulling their own hair out just because of how detailed all this stuff is. The clothing, like how much detail is too much detail in clothing? When you're Kyoto Animation, that's a trick question. It's all the detail. The dolls obviously have the more elaborate get-ups, but all of the clothing in the show feels period appropriate for about 1910s, 1920s, and just the way that clothing just interacts and folds while in motion, like this is just an animation clinic. It seems like I'm just harping on it, but like everything about this, there are just extra animation details thrown in all the time. And it's not even so much a flex. It's just, it's just so hyper detailed. And Kill Annie just on the whole produces some of the best looking anime on the market. This is my opinion, but I really don't think that's a hot take. It's always worth the wait. They don't put out as much as other big name studios, but when they put something out, it is mint. But getting into the serious stuff now, because Violet Evergarden just has a lot of uh, emotional things to unpack. Because obviously, starting off, there's the whole child soldier, living weapon, morality issue surrounding Violet and Gilbert's relationship at the start. I think the Major did the best he could given the situation, and he did teach Violet to read and write. But he hated all the way that he had to use her as a tool but at the same time, you can see that this anguish in his face of like, he really doesn't want to send this girl onto the battlefield, but Violet is such an efficient killer that it's very, it's a very good idea to use her. And she ends up becoming his personal bodyguard. That's kind of how he keeps her near him. And the soldiers at the time take to calling her the major's dog. Like, ugh, that's rough. And in turn, Violet herself, who's only known war and military and orders, the show does a good job of, I think, laying out Violet's just emotional immaturity. Again, she's only known battle and orders because that's all she's been allowed to learn so far. During the war, she's like 11, 12, 
by the time the war is over, like Violet starts the show, she is like 14, 15 at best. So, I mean, we're talking child soldier. Yeah, they had like an 11 year old out there killing dudes. This is a rough deal. And this is the root of her and Gilbert's trauma following the war. Gilbert tried to save Violet morally, but honestly, there just simply wasn't time to allow him to do so during the conflict. And Violet, as emotionally stunted as she is at the start of the show, she's able to improve because she is basically thrown into the deep end. She has all this separation from Gilbert, so she has to learn from the people around her. In fact, I remember the first time I was watching this show in 2018, I found myself a bit frustrated with Violet Evergarden back at the first time because, frankly, I thought she was boring, at least very flat, and I was trying to, I don't know, it must have been some kind of impatience on my part, because I was also like not sure at the time watching it, like, what kind of show is this? Because Violet at the beginning of the show just can't handle emotions that she doesn't understand, and she doesn't understand any emotions. It's a, it's a vicious cycle. Uh, there's also a bit of like that awkward humor of Violet flubbing something or just completely misunderstanding or just saying something like she's told something and then just immediately parrots it back to somebody else and the person gets all flushers like, I didn't mean for you to say that. Why did you say that? But when I'm rewatching it the past couple of times, I found like the awkward humor kind of be more uh, as just early examples of Violet stumbling her way through doing, she's trying her best, but the first couple of episodes, the first four episodes or so, Violet is very much in the learning phase. It's really episode five where she's doing these public love letters for uh, two royals who are basically engaged. They are uh, arranged to be wed, but through these public love letters, it's like this tradition so all the people can see how much these two royals love each other, even though both of them are just having letters written and it's like this big elaborate poetry thing. Violet is able to reach out and connect with the princess of Drossel and get her, understand her on a personal level. And in the end, the princess marries into the Flugel family, and it's a happy marriage to where initially it was just going to be something out of necessity through because of Violet helping the princess understand her true feelings, and then Violet in turn kind of getting a first glimpse at romantic love, it was just a really good development point. And it showed that Violet was beginning to apply what she'd learned so far. But even so, all these early episodes, I mentioned it before, Violet feels like a side character in her own show. She's an enabler for her clients. Because after all, every episode is a self-contained story, but at the same time, every job that she does is this major emotional stepping stone for her as well. Violet is like a sponge. She's just absorbing everything that is being shown her, and she's trying to apply it in her own way. And this also allows her co-workers to better understand her once she finally starts opening up to them. And all of this goes through because by the time that Violet is ready to carry the show, by golly does she carry the show. Violet, at her core, I think just the way that her character is designed, she's still an enabler, but now she has the power to reach out for what she wants in life. So instead of being reliant on orders and someone telling her what to do and just living her life completely for someone else, she now knows how to live life and appreciate life for herself. 
And circling back to Dietfried for a moment, at the end of the main series, this is the first moment where he tries to do right by Violet. Because at the beginning of the show, we have Major Gilbert and Violet. Both of them are heavily injured. And Gilbert is basically, he says, I'm giving you your final orders. I want you to live and I want you to live a good life. I want you to you know, be free. You don't have to take orders anymore. This is, this, the, you, you are free. There, no one will order you around anymore. So Dietfried, at the end of the main series, after he and Violet have to work together to stop a very uh, harrowing situation by people who want to restart the war, he and Violet end up teaming up to basically take out terrorists. And so he's trying to sort of make amends for all the mean things that he said to her over the show. And so he wishes Violet a long life of happiness, but he tries to frame it in the same way that Gilbert did all of the those years ago. He tries to frame it as an order. However, Violet says, thank you, I no longer need orders. And you just see Dietfried just almost take a step back of just, oh man, I have completely misunderstood this girl. Like she is, she truly has grown and from then on, even as he, Dietfried just himself, he has a personality of just, he just talks down to everybody, but he never talks down to Violet from then on. She is his equal. And even in that moment, I love how Gilbert's final orders in that moment, that's just another moment of you have the beginning of the show and then you have the end of the show where Violet has just come so far that she realizes, okay, yes, Gilbert, Gilbert really, truly loved me. And I know what he meant when he said, I love you. And I mean, if I have any complaints to lodge against the show, they're rather nitpicky. It's mainly just, I'm not a huge fan of melodrama or at least like back to back to back. So if there's one thing that I want to say about if you are looking into rewatching Violet Evergarden, I would say just watch it at your own pace. Don't try and watch episodes back to back to back. Let them breathe because the show can be a bit much. At the same time, there are a couple of times where the levity of a moment is kind of lost in, on me because I'm watching Violet do super soldier stuff in a frilly dress. It's hilarious. But speaking of the melodrama and just how Kyoto Animation does their work, I, I thought it would be fun while I was watching to keep a tally on which episodes made me shed a solitary manly tear. Because being a hard-boiled man of the woods who doesn't care for melodrama and also being a long-time watcher of Kyoto Animation shows, I felt sufficiently qualified to keep my cheeks unmoistened by weakness. And so I counted any time the show cried, made me cry, it was just like, an, oh, damn it, they got me. And so I was actually holding pretty solid until the end of episode five and the wedding with the princess and the prince. And there's a whole thing about the princess and her handmaid, like this handmaid is like, was also the, uh, the princess's wet nurse and she delivered the princess and raised her like a mother. So yeah, the wedding, damn it, they got me. Episode six, I was fine. So episodes one through four and episode six, okay, the wedding got me a little bit. Uh, episode seven with the sad playwright and his uh, mourning the loss of his dead kid. That one's unfair. It doesn't count. I cried my eyes out every time, just every time. Uh, episodes eight and nine, the gloves just come off because episode eight starts with the flashback to Violet and Gilbert's relationship during the war and leading up to that final battle. But by episode nine, 
Kyoto Animation is just bare-knuckle boxing with my emotions. Like, this is the most powerful episode in the show. It's extremely brutal, but also just extremely cathartic at the end. Like, unfair. This episode is unfair. Doesn't count. Doesn't count. And episode 10, I... Okay, look, I'm going to be honest. After episode 7, everything got me. And this is something of, like, I can be good for, like, 90% of the runtime, but then it only takes one moment to get me, and Kill Annie are just masters at getting me for that one. Obviously, both movies got me, damn it. The first movie, not so much until the very end. I mean, I'm talking, there's five minutes left of runtime. Uh, so I'm kind of calling that one a draw. Dun- doesn't count. The final movie, I am also calling unfair. Doesn't count because there is a confession scene at the end of that film that is a solid two to three minutes of two people barely standing up because they are just so overwhelmed by the moment. They are just crying both of their eyes out. It's two minutes of crying. I mean, it just works. Oh my God, does it work? I mean, this is confession scenes and just these heartful moments. Kyoto Animation has been doing this stuff for years and years and years. This is their bread and butter. So, I mean, when Violet Evergarden and just Kyoto Animation wants you to cry, by God, they will make you cry. And this is like my fourth time watching the show as well. I should be guarded against this. I thought I was going to be okay. But no, in terms of making me cry, Kyoto Animation just kicked my ass. I mean, because Violet Evergarden, if you want my opinions right now, Violet Evergarden is a masterwork, and I really don't say that lightly. So, I just want to, and there are just specific aspects of the film that I really just want to talk about. And so, getting into the film, I have to say, like, first off, Violet Evergarden, the movie, was a film that took me a long time to watch. I mean, it did drop on Netflix in October 21, but I don't think I saw this film until, like, May 2022. And by then, I knew roughly the major twist, or I could pretty much guess, because Netflix has a lovely habit of just spoiling whatever movie it has using the title cards. So, good job, Netflix. Even then, it's not really a twist in the long run. It's more like, I think it's more like a door that the writers had kept propped open until they were ready to fully open it. So, if you'll remember, like, through the series, there's this whole thing of, well, we can't find Major Gilbert. We never found his body from the battlefield. But it's been years and years and years. No one's ever heard of from him He's pretty much dead. Everyone's just going like he's dead, but they still never found the body, even as the battlefield got fully cleaned up and just everything. While I thought the circumstances surrounding Gilbert's survival were just honestly, just frankly, just hand wavy and straight up soap opera territory, like it was, yeah, okay, he made it, but why? And the show is just like, uh, he just lived. Like it's the, it's the same way that Violet just like, oh, she lived. Like you saw. In episode nine, you see like how badly injured these two people are. And Violet Evergarden still operates in some relative reality. So by all intents and purposes, I mean, Violet should be dead. So in that kind of applying the same logic, it's like, well, Violet survived. Obviously, Gilbert survived, even though he somehow got buried in rubble. Maybe it just fell in the exact way for him to crawl out or for some random person to find him. Because... The whole circumstance is Gilbert wakes up in a hospital. He doesn't have any dog tags. So everyone just pretty much assumes, oh, this guy must be one of ours because he wakes up in a Garderick hospital. He wakes up in the hospital of the enemy, but of course, now the war is over. And he is pretty much just set adrift for a couple of years until he eventually lands on the island of Ecarte. And the general setup is 
he's on this island and it's a it's a perfect spot for him to assume a new identity and also help out the residents because the island was home to all of the men who left the island for war they never came back they were all killed and so it's part grief and just part convenience and just also he just likes the place that he stays on the island of Ecarte and teaches the children there. It's all the old folks, women, and children living on the island. So, again, I kind of thought the the whole premise to it was a bit hand-wavy, but once you started seeing what Gilbert had been up to and other things, it's like, okay, I can see, I can kind of see how this is going. But what frustrates me is, obviously, he can't stay away from the news cycle. So, of course, he knew that Violet was alive and that everyone else was going through and just everything else. And so when Violet and Claudia end up on the island, Gilbert is, he still thinks that he's gotten away with it. But then Violet and Claudia end up on the island and he just has to fake confront all that all over again. And it's a, it's a decision of his that on a practical level, you, in, my, myself and Claudia are just shouting, you know, Gilbert, you idiot. What are you doing? You, like you're completely running away. But then you start seeing more of his circumstances and his guilt of how, again, the root of his trauma is he used Violet as a tool for war and he never got over that. And he did the best he could by her. But again, all the only news that he's ever gotten for her from her is her uh, achievements as an auto memories doll. But all of the her growth as a person, you don't really get that in a news article. And it's a wonderful little inversion on their entire dynamic where it's now Violet is the one who has to step up and approach the major at his level and come to understand him in a new way. He's the one running away. He's the one who doesn't want to confront his feelings. Meanwhile, Violet is out there, you know, standing there going like, here I am. I love you. And Gilbert is just so consumed with guilt that he can't say I love you back anymore. He basically, under his new identity, he said, I killed that man. He's not here anymore. He used you. He was a terrible person. And Violet's like, no, because of what you taught me, because of what you gave me, I was able to develop. It's such a beautiful little uh, detail. And it's one of those, we've had all these different moments and all of these episodes where Violet has learned these emotional lessons and has learned about feelings and how to interpret them and how to work with them. And now she's having to put it all together. It's just a wonderful uh, flipping of the dynamic where now she's the one pursuing him. It's just, it's just so good. And it, this is completely Violet's movie through and through. There's no enabling anyone else. There's no, uh, well, I mean, the, the, the kid, obviously, but I mean, this is something of, this is Violet's movie for she has a goal. She needs to go get it. And this is this is her final test in a way. And I also love that this little journey that we follow along with Daisy Magnolia, I found that to be an interesting dynamic because there's this unexpected dose of melancholy as Daisy is in the future, again, 60 years in the future, just following all this, long after it's occurred, Violet and her co-workers are dead and gone for the most part. And it's just this extra dose of melancholy that, you know, life goes on, yet there's still a legacy of those who came before us. 
and you can see traces of these people in the next generation and in the people whose lives that they touch directly. There are traces of Violet all over the island of Ekarte, even 60 years later. People remember her and people knew her. Daisy realizes this, and there's even a special commemorative stamp that is printed only from the island of Ekarte, and that is a stamp of Violet Evergarden. And so all of that being said, what I will say about the conclusion is originally the movie left me a little unsatisfied because honestly, I just wanted more. I'd been given so much across this journey, but it was one of those, I just didn't want the journey to end. I wanted just one more, I don't know, an embrace, give me an epilogue scene like a clan ed after story, like when rolling credits, give me something like a concluding key art, like let me see a wedding dress, something. Let me continue this journey with Violet. But in the end, we, as all things, we do have to say goodbye. And I still, nowadays, I kind of prefer the ending, leaving it more open-ended. Like, obviously, they get together. If you want to see a key art of Violet and Gilbert in their wedding attire, there is obviously the light novel. They have all of this together, and they have a little bit of extra uh, artwork if you were looking for that because I went and looked at the light novel artwork and that was pretty satisfying just seeing like okay that's what her wedding dress looked like or that's what Gilbert's suit looked like so even just that but the way we say goodbye to Violet in the movie is Violet's story closes in the same way it began and it ends her story began with I love you and a letter And the ending to Violet's story is a letter and I love you. And frankly, what's a better ending than that? And so I want to close out with a section from the OVA episode. This is sung by Irma at the climax of the episode. So I'm going to play a clip at the end to roll out the podcast episode here. But the script is, Love is always in a sunshine-filled place. Even if I can't see you, can't touch you. It's still like you're by my side. Violet Evergarden was made by people who loved their craft, and even though they are now gone, we still remember them through this day, and we still remember what they worked on. But more than that, the love that they shared with us over the years is carried on by their families and co-workers. And like always, love continues to conquer all. Thank you for listening.